Charles Darwin was born on February 12th, 1809. In recent years, his birthday has increasingly become known as International Darwin Day, an annual opportunity to remember his life and be inspired to act on the principles of perpetual curiosity, scientific thinking, and hunger for truth that he represents. But even more than 150 years after the publication of his landmark book on the origin of species, there remain large parts of our human species who are unconvinced of Darwin's genius. Polls here in the U.S. consistently show that 65% of adults say that humans and other living things have evolved, while 31% say that humans and other living things have existed in their present form since the beginning of time. The tragedy of the creationism versus evolutionary evolution debates today is that Darwin's theories of natural selection were among the greatest intellectual challenges of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But we live in the early 21st century, and we, in which we are long past the point at which evolution became settled science, and really the edifice on which modern biology and other fields are built. Indeed, we're less than a, less than a decade away from the 100th anniversary of the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. As Unitarian Universalists, our forebears were among the earliest religious leaders to accept the paradigm-shifting implications of evolution. That we humans are not a little lower than the angels, but merely a little higher than the apes with whom we share a common ancestor. And that we are not uniquely special creations, you know, created in our present form at the beginning of time a few thousand years ago, but instead deeply interconnected with the other forms of life and ecosystems on this earth. As our UU seventh principle affirms, we need to practice respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Some of you may recall last Sunday when I said that Unitarian Universalism is part of what is known as the liberal turn in religion, and I should hasten to qualify in this presidential election year that the liberal turn in religion is not the turn to the Democratic Party. It is a reference to classic liberalism from the Latin root meaning liber um, or free. Thus, the liberal turn in religion is is a move toward freedom in religion. It's a shift from authority grounded in community and hierarchy and tradition to authority grounded in reason, what is logical and experience, what you either know internally in your own subjective internal firsthand experience or what you can experience because someone can demonstrate it for you empirically in a scientific laboratory through the scientific method. And that shift toward being a free religion really matters when radical new ideas emerge, like Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. So what did Darwin mean by natural selection? Here's just one passage from On the Origin of Species. He wrote, Owing to this struggle of life, 
any variation, however slight and from whatever cause proceeding, if it be in any degree profitable to the individual of any species in its infinitely complex relations to other organic beings and to external nature, will tend to the preservation of that individual and will generally be inherited by its offspring. After Darwin, traditional religious claims were increasingly challenged by scientific evidence that complex life originated not through one divine act of special creation a few thousand years ago on a Tuesday, as at least one theorist said, you know, Tuesday around 2 p.m., a few thousand years ago, but through billions of years of evolution. Many of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears had an openness to such new ideas because they had been deeply influenced by the European Enlightenment. As Immanuel Kant wrote in his essay, What is Enlightenment?, that was published just a few decades before Darwin was born. Uh, Kant wrote, Enlightenment is man's exit from a self-incurred immaturity. And immaturity is the inability to make use of one's intellect without the direction of another. Do you hear that liberal turn in religion so that immaturity, what the Enlightenment was moving against, was unwillingness to make a decision on your own without the direction of community, what other people think, or what tradition tells us to think, or what a hierarchy tells you to think. That's what Darwin was going against and what many of our forebears were willing to do. Kant ended that essay, the most famous passage, What is Enlightenment? He said, dare to know. Dare to know. Unitarian Universalism is one of many progressive religious traditions in our world today that seeks to continue that enlightenment project of daring to know. If you're interested in reflecting further on how Darwin and other paradigm-shifting thinkers helped lay the groundwork for the modern world as we know it, the best interview uh, overview I found recently is called The Shape of the New. It's a book that came out last year. The subtitle is Four Big Ideas and How They Shaped the Modern World. Now, there's other big ideas that have shaped the modern world, but they pick four and, and take them a chapter at a time. They pick Adam Smith, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, and then they cheat on the second one and pick both Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And they reflect in turn on how have capitalism, socialism, evolution, and liberal democracy, how did they shape the modern world and how do they continue to influence us today? And they look at both how they came out of the Enlightenment, but also how there have been what you could call counter-Enlightenment reactions to them that also shape our world today. But for this morning, two days after Darwin's birthday, International Darwin Day, I'd like to focus on Darwin. As I do so, how might his perpetual curiosity, his scientific thinking, his hunger for truth, how might that continue to inspire you today? What might you dare to know? What might you inspire others to dare to know? As we begin to reflect on the person behind the revolutionary idea that species originated not through special creation, but by means of natural selection, right? It's instead of top-down, bottom-up, right? So it didn't come from on high, and it's very related to that liberal turn in religion. What do we know bottom-up for ourselves, not what's being imposed from us on high? 
And so as we look at the origins of that radical idea, it's interesting to note that Darwin's life was nowhere near as radical as his thinking. Really quite the opposite. He was a conventional and kindly Victorian gentleman. He was often ill and confined to bed. He married his first cousin and retired at an early age to a country home near London where he lived with his family and worked with the most unthreatening of creatures imaginable, pigeons, barnacles, earthworms, bees. Well, they're slightly threatening, but you know, you get my idea. He was a, a modest person who lived quietly, who attended the occasional scientific meeting, and who shunned public debate. Indeed, he held back on publishing on the origin of species for two decades. Now, part of it was that he was a perfectionist and he just kept working at it, but he was also wary of the controversy that he knew it would bring. But when he heard that through the grapevine that someone else was starting to come around to these ideas, he was like, now I'm not going to get scooped after two decades of working on this. So he, he published, but tragically, after all that time, he wasn't present at when it was first first presented at a scientific meeting in public because he was mourning the death of his two-year-old son, Charles Jr., who had died of scarlet fever. But even with the publication of On the Origin of Species in 1859, he still held back at first. In In that first book, he intentionally did not go the next step of saying, okay, I've laid all this stuff out there about earthworms and pigeons and bees and apes. He didn't go the next step and say, and this is what it means for humans, right? He just, he sort of laid it all out there, but didn't connect that final dot, but because he knew how controversial it would be, and he was right to be concerned. And, you know, we, so that, we see that even today, with mountains more evidence than Darwin could marshal in his own lifetime, fully one-third of the U.S. population denies the scientific evidence of evolution and instead contends that humans and other living beings have existed in their present form since the beginning of time a few thousand years ago. Nevertheless, a little more than a decade after that first um, book, Darwin did make explicit that humans were part of his theory in that 1871 book, The Descent of Man, followed the next year by the expression of emotions in man and animals. Now, to briefly consider the context in which Darwin was writing, it's fascinating to note that in 1859, Darwin's main competition, so when he published On the Origin of Species, and this is what his publisher said, they're like, you know what what we're going up against? Dickens. You know, that was the same year that A Tale of Two Cities came out, so that was his main competition. And I bring up Dickens not just because of that, but because Dickens' novels relate so strongly to the themes of the Industrial Revolution, and those cultural changes related to the Industrial Revolution were happening all around Darwin. Keep in mind that when Darwin was born in 1809, most people still lived in towns and hamlets. They worked in fields, they cooked over open fireplaces, and most people never traveled. But just a half century later, in 1859, when Origin appeared, British cities were teeming. Mills were working night and day. Coal ovens were common. Trips through the countryside in comfortable trains were becoming common fare for those with means. Thousands of miles of railroad track had been laid down and now crossed the country, knitting it, uh, and knitting it together as never before, circulating its goods, its influences, and its citizens. 
So while Darwin's ideas did change the world and, and in many ways help push us over that threshold from the pre-modern fully into the modern world, the world was also changing in many ways already all around Darwin and ushering in what we call modernity. And as I said earlier, from our 21st century perspective, Darwin's birthday, International Darwin Day, is an annual invitation to remember Darwin's life and his example of perpetual curiosity, scientific thinking, and hunger for truth. And in reflecting on his life, it is significant to note that he didn't begin calling himself an agnostic until well after the crushing death of his favored child, Annie in 1851. That was the point at which he stopped all church going and religious participation after her funeral. To me, this part of Darwin's life is is a call to find a way of being religious, of finding meaning, and of creating authentic community in a way that honors both what what we know for ourselves firsthand to be true and in a way that doesn't force us to betray our reason. In contrast to the invitation of Darwin Day, you know, as I look at my own life and growing up in a theologically conservative environment, I was not taught what could be called intellectual bravery. And there were times when I felt, as Darwin did, that I could either be true to my reason and to my experience, or I could be true to the religious traditions and to the religious authorities that I was being taught to follow. But I didn't have any good examples of how to be, to have both science and spirituality, how to have both reason and religion. There were many, I should say though, there were many kind and compassionate people in the church in which I grew up who taught me many valuable lessons about how to be a good human being in the world. But there was always a sense in which I felt like I had to check my brain at the door of the church. The implicit message I received and occasionally the explicit message I received was that it's okay to ask questions, but not too many questions. And that regardless of what questions I asked, I felt expected to reach predetermined answers and to get there pretty quickly. Now, I remember going to conferences with my youth group in which t-shirts were sold that said, you know, I believe in the Big Bang. God spoke and bang, it was. There was a lot of fear and anxiety all around me about students going into public school science classrooms and learning about Darwin's theories of natural selection, of common descent of man from a common ancestor, and then beginning to question traditional beliefs that they had been taught. And here's the rub. In some senses, they were right to worry, as the saying goes. It's not paranoid if they really are after you. But here's the other side of that dynamic. Darwin wasn't targeting traditional religion. His goal was simply to better, more accurately, and more fully understand this amazing world in which we find ourselves. He was practicing what we, what we you use call our fourth principle, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And that's one of the many reasons why I am committed to this religious movement called Unitarian Universalism, that we don't have all the answers and don't expect that we ever will, but we're committed to being a beloved community for one another as we individually and collectively live the questions. 
For now, I'll conclude by inviting you to hear the final paragraph of Darwin's 1859 book on the origin of species. And whereas many, I don't think this is a controversial claim, that whereas many scientific texts are not particularly well written, those of you who have read a fair amount, they may be very intellectually rigorous, but they're not exactly beautiful prose stylists by and large, uh, and, and often become obsolete after new discoveries are made. That's in many ways not the case with On the Origin of Species, or like The Voyage of the Beagle, for example. That Darwin's work is in many ways continue to be relevant, and because he was a naturalist looking at these very close observations of earthworms and bees and pigeons, many of the, much of that continues to hold, hold up, and his, again, his prose is still quite um, beautiful to read. So I invite you to hear these words from the conclusion of Darwin's landmark book. He wrote, Thus, from the war of nature and from famine and death, the most exalted object of which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of higher animals, directly follows. So he's really kind of inverting that whole Genesis idea. You know, God spoke and bang it was and and created these beautiful things. He's saying, no, from the war of nature, from famine, from death, that's where the most exalted object of which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of higher animals, directly follows. He continues, and I love the sentence, there is a grandeur in this view of life. There is a grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers having been originally breathed into just a few forms or one, and that whilst this planet has gone on cycling, gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. I'll read that last part just one more time. And so that's where he's trying to give you this sense of there is a grandeur in this view of life that we've gone from such a, you know, from the simple to the complex, not top down, but bottom up, that whilst this planet has gone on cycling according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved, you know, how it came to be that we went from simple, okay, flashback to high school biology, right, simple prokaryotic cells to eukaryotic cells to then organs to these systems, these emergence of increasingly complex, you know, organisms. He's saying that there is a grandeur to that view of life. In my childhood, though, Darwin was the boogeyman, But I invite you, either now or in the future, if you haven't already done so, to spend some time encountering Darwin's ideas firsthand for yourself. Perhaps at first, maybe just, you know, a chapter in that book, The Shape of the New, where you can kind of encounter him summarized in a secondary source. But eventually, if you are interested, to go back and read some of those primary sources. Go back and read some of the On the Origin of Species. Go back and read The Voyage of the Beagle, his record of, you know, exploring the Galapagos Islands. 
toward the end of the benediction, I'll, I'll pause, and you may have noticed the music today was all sort of Darwinian in its sense of appreciation for the plants and the animals of the natural world, and Nick has a final little medley selection that it's only about 90 seconds that we want you to listen to as you reflect on what sort of maybe stood out to you in the service today, and I'll leave you before we do that with a final thought. When I think about that story that I shared earlier with you of the ways in which uh, Darwin was driven out of um, religious community after the tragic death. I think three of his children um, died. He's very close to his family and so uh, essentially found that he that there wasn't room for him in his religious community um, for living into the questions, that, for living the free and responsible search for truth and meaning in his time that he felt called to live. Um, that when I think about that and relate back to my own life, I think about... Um, and invite you to think about parallels in, in your life. I think back to when I was a junior in high school and was a junior counselor at a summer camp for seven weeks. And the director of that camp just made a, a simple offer. He said, are there any members of the staff who might be willing to get up early? Now, that's no small thing for people that are you know, late adolescents, like to sleep in late, been tired, taking care of kids all day, to say, anybody willing to get up before breakfast for a staff Bible study? But the twist was, that at this Bible study, he wanted you to bring the questions that you'd always wanted to ask but had never had a, a space to ask in. And I remember that was the first place where I ever heard the word theodicy. Now, theodicy is one of those nerdy theology words. It comes from the Greek uh, theodice, which is God and justice, of how do you reconcile a belief in the existence of God with injustice in the world, right? If you believe that God is all loving and all, then God would want to do something about evil, for example. That's what bothered Darwin. And and if God was all-powerful, God would be able to do something about the evil. And if God is you know, all-knowing, God knows about the evil. So how was that? You know, so, of course, one traditional answer that I was given growing up is, it's a mystery, right? That's <laughs> the same answer I was given about the Trinity. How is that possible? It's a mystery. Just believe it. Have faith. And so if you so start to look into that, though, uh, another option, and where I finally settled, was you can start letting go of some of those omni-words, right? omnipotent and omnipresent and all you can start letting go of some of those things and saying however I understand the divine or the sacred it, it needs to be different than than this way because this way doesn't doesn't make sense, or at least it doesn't make sense to me. And so, you know, Dan was one of those people in my life who helped carve out time and space in which I could dare to know. So who have been those places, people and places in your life who have given you permission to dare to know and how might you do that for other people? How might you encourage other people to dare to know? If there are other people, people in your life that might find this to be a life-giving place of daring to know, I invite you to invite them to come with you, friends or family or colleagues in future weeks. But as you go from this place, wherever you do dare to know, I encourage you to keep in mind uh, the distinction between being brutally honest with what you discover and speaking the truth in love. Right? There's all the difference in the world as we dare to know between being brutally honest and speaking the truth in love. So as you go from this place, continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with Thanksgiving.